0: It's Chris, with a quick interruption before the show begins. I'm genuinely touched that thousands of you from countries all over the world have been listening in. It really blows my mind. Now, some of you have reached out asking how you can support the show. And I have two answers. First, scroll through the show notes and see which groups the guest has recommended. From surf programs that help vets with PTSD to mailing socks to troops overseas, there have been some terrific organizations doing important work. Find one that you like and donate some time, money, or awareness. Second, I don't make any money from this show and I don't plan to, but if you want to find out about my time in the Marines, you can buy a copy of my memoir, Chasing Alexander, A Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. Blue Ink Review said, quote, His writing is simple and powerful. We smell sweat, hear Maureen screaming, and feel Martin's heart thundering with fear. End quote. If that sounds interesting to you, you can order a copy at any online retailer. There you have it. Two simple ways to support the show, if you'd like to. Thanks again for listening.
1: That was the point where I was like this is deployment where I'm gonna die. Hey
0: everyone, it's Chris here with the newest episode of The Long War Interviews. My guest today is Nick Burkert and I think this is one of the most honest interviews I've done and I really respect the hell out of Nick for being so candid about a lot of things that are hard to talk about. I think you'll enjoy this episode. But before we get started, I want to talk about death and dying. Everyone knows, in an academic sense, that someday all of us will die. We all know this, we don't think about it much, but we understand it, just the way it is. But sometimes your own mortality becomes more apparent. Maybe you have a medical problem, or you're in a car crash. But there are times in life when death is no longer an academic abstraction, but an up-close, pressing issue. For a lot of people who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, death was an up-close, pressing issue all the time. Every time people left their FOB in Iraq and headed down IED-strewn streets, they felt that little tug, heard that little voice saying, Maybe today's the day? I certainly felt that way when I was in Afghanistan, and it it takes a little bit of you to come to the conclusion that you're going to die soon. And going through the mental process of obliterating your future, it's hard, it's painful. And then, if you don't die, if the, if the chemo gets rid of your cancer, if the car crash isn't deadly, if you rotate back home from a deployment, it takes time to realize that you made it, that you have a future. I'm, I'm just a regular guy, and I wish I had a better way of describing that feeling, but I hope you can understand what I'm saying, I hope it makes sense. Anyway, there aren't any veterans organizations to promote today, Nick has a good reason for not wanting to recommend any, and I hope you'll listen all the way through the end to find out why. Okay. Now let's start the show. The United States has been at war for the last 20 years. My name is Chris, and I sit down to talk with veterans about their time fighting overseas. These are the Long War Interviews.
1: My name's nick burkert i served in the u.s army from january of 06 to october of 2017. spent most of my time with the 82nd airborne division i was 19 delta for the army it's a cav scout i tell people it's similar to infantry but i was mostly well not mostly i was i say 95 percent mounted whereas infantry i feel like in people's heads it's like purely dismounted vehicles are for for uh, weak asses, so I, I was mostly mounted, and then I had airborne school in my contract. So after basic and MOS training, I went straight to Fort Benning for basic airborne school, and that was like three weeks, I think. And then I got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg, North Carolina.
0: Do you want it? Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the 82nd Airborne, a little bit about Airborne, like it's a very historic unit. I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of it, but maybe just like, you know, what's its legacy and kind of what, what's their mission?
1: Yeah. So the 82nd Airborne Division has a long, illustrious career of, I believe their motto has been four years, is America's Guard of Honor. You know, sounds very illustrious, very, I guess, eye-grabbing. That's what got me to volunteer to go to Fort Bragg instead of the 173rd. Which was in Italy, and also an airborne unit. I was like, you know, 82nd Airborne, Fort Bragg. You know, it's it's one of the large first or second largest you know military base for the United States in the world. And they this seems like a good place to start. You know, 18, Private Burkert, and it still has to function this way because it has for decades. But you know, out of the four combat brigades and the one support brigade, out of the 82nd Airborne there's always one brigade that's on GRF, which is the Global Readiness Force. Hurricane Katrina, I believe it was second brigade combat team. Even though they're a combat element, they went and supported Katrina in a non-combat role just as a humanitarian effort. And then with the earthquakes in Haiti, I can't recall when that was, but the Haiti earthquakes, same thing, Our GRF, not mine, but the 82nds, deployed to Haiti in a humanitarian role to help with the efforts there and in the aftermath of those you know devastating earthquakes sorry earthquakes it was one of those natural disasters i am not trying to make light of it i just can't recall it's been so long so the the catchphrase is always you know on 72 hours notice you know the grf can be wheels up on their way to any corner of the world within that time frame and you know if that grf deployed you know the backup grf You know, would take its seat in first. God forbid, two GRS from you know a a division have to deploy in two separate you know conflicts or or humanitarian efforts. But yeah, it's earned its title just based off of the historic battles that it's been a part of. You know, to the point that you know the airborne drop zones on Fort Bragg are named after some of the famous ones. Normandy is the only one that's coming to mind right now. So and more specifically to answer your question about what airborne is so you know basic airborne it's by title the basic airborne course so the school is at fort benning it's three weeks long first week they call ground week uh, you're pretty much just learning pretty much just learning how to put the equipment on and if i recall correctly how to they call it a plf a parachute landing fall fancy jargon for you're falling at 22 feet per second. Here's how you crash into the earth without breaking limbs. Cause that's all it was. And the second week, if you've ever seen the movie, we were soldiers with Mel Gibson. There's a point in that movie at the beginning, right before they deploy where Mel Gibson, you know, he, you know, they're deploying and, and you see Mel Gibson standing in front of the, the towers where in second week of airborne school, you put on the harness, you put on a deployed parachute, and they hook up the parachute to this, I guess, pulley system. It pulls you up this tower and then it lets you go. And, you know, the intent is you're gonna do that, that PLF, that parachute landing fall. When you hit the earth, you know, it's better to do it. If they drop you, do the PLF. It's a much more controlled environment. And then assuming you've made it that far, airborne school's not hard, but assuming you've made it to this point, uh, third week is jump week. So uh, you do a Hollywood jump, which, is just the parachute, no combat gear, no rifle, nothing. Just the parachute, and and we would call it Hollywood. I believe we did three Hollywoods, one full combat gear, and then the fifth jump was to qualify and earn your wings. And you did that on graduation day. You jumped into the drop zone, full combat gear. You come, you are essentially walking into graduation where friends and family could be waiting. And at the time, they are still doing down i've heard the phrase blood wings it's been kind of yeah they just pretty much smashed the wings into wherever they have to be sitting into your collarbone below it just yeah it was a rite of passage and you know I, i'm sure they did away with that you know all these years later but you know after that i wish it was higher speed than it is because people think oh shit you were airborne like you weren't like the whole face mask for oxygen and jumping out and deploying your chute, like no you're thinking like halo like special forces like think of the kid with the helmet on and that's what airborne was to me like you got the super buff guy doing the halo jumps with sf and then you got the special kid wearing the helmet and that was us and what it was a static line jump so for people that don't know it's it's cable that's hooked to the parachute that's packed on your back this cable hooks to the static line that is in whatever aircraft you're jumping from. And when you jump out, it's really hard to mess up. You jump out that static line extends from the chute. It deploys your chute, and then you're just floating down and and you do your PLF, you know, when you get there. So I'm not diminishing it. I loved it. You know, I love being part of the A2nd. There was a huge sense of pride aside from the cool guy units, like special forces, CAG, you know, the Rangers, stuff like that, I think for regular army units the 82nd you know was really unmatched and and i truly loved it i I would have spent my whole career there if i could
0: i get that do you want to i was thinking maybe for this next part talk a little bit about your two pumps through iraq kind of what you did how it was different on each of your tours and then talk about afghanistan more or less you know
1: yeah so The first deployment was part of Bush's surge, and the surge was anywhere from, it could be one-year deployment, which was typical for the Army, or it could be up to 18 months, which at the time I thought would be super awesome because I'm 18, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go fucking kill bad guys. But 18 months, looking back, knowing that I did 14 and a half, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is fucking terrible. But our mission in Iraq, we're in the... Nasseria area, the base we were at is, was combat support center Scania. It was the last fueling stop. Anyone that was doing like resupply missions to biop or farther north leave Kuwait, they would drive, they would stop at Scania because it was a massive refueling point. And then the next day or so they would make, you know, the last leg of their journey to whatever northern area that they were traveling to. So our main role there, Scania was literally bordered against msr tampa and our role primarily was uh, rcp the route clearance package we had limits to the south and north but we had a certain section that was under our ao to the south on the msr and a certain once it was like 20 clicks to the north was our part of tampa and then All the area to the east and west of it so that was our primary mission kind of the auxiliary missions that i recall doing were these KLE key leader engagements where we'd meet with you know the local muktars and and i can't remember the other phrase now but like the mayors and and you know governors of the region kind of trying to get them to play nice with us you know stop blowing up our convoys stop blowing up the supply convoys you know what can we do to make our area had aqi and jam or were the big players in our ao and, you know, at the time, yeah, IEDs in the traditional, as I mean, I guess as traditional as IEDs can be, but like, you know, 155, stuff that, that a, uh, I feel like we'd be able to detect with the various equipment, but where it got to, where it really came to a head was right after the new year. So it would have been into 2008. We'd been there six months. Um my platoon leader at the time, Lieutenant Schultz, recently got promoted to first lieutenant, and he ended up getting promoted in position as well to our XO. So he was our XO, but at the end of January, January 31st, we took, we always took mortar fire. You know, some would land inside the wire, some wouldn't. Their aim sucked. It wasn't like our mortarmen, where, you know, you could drop it on a dime. You know, they, they had a hard time hitting anything remotely near us so you know we'd still go to the bunkers when we heard uh, first half part of the point we didn't have an alert but you could hear if you'd been there for a while you could hear someone just hung around outside the wire and it was close and then you know you hear the wisping coming in the cracking january 31st is where it all changed though because lieutenant schultz like i said he was promoted to exo so he had his own office now and Out of all the rounds, out of all the locations, they could have hit on our fob. They hit, you know, straight through the heart. They hit essentially right outside his office door. And, you know, next door was our commander's office and first sergeant's office. And then our armory was next to them. And then our talk was across the pavilion, kind of. It was not much bigger than the room I'm sitting in right now. And... Um, you know, Lieutenant Schultz was, you know, he got trapped in his office and he ultimately, you know, was killed from that mortar blast. And, you know, the next day, I remember this was my first death uh, I had experienced and, and someone not close to me, like he was a close friend, but, you know, he was my platoon leader for the year leading up to the deployment and the six months until he was promoted, so it it hit really close to all of us, and just had a kid, Logan, and he just went to go see him on mid-tour leave, and I remember they said, I wasn't part of this, because at the time, I think I was like a PFC, but the NCOs, I heard him talking like, oh, we gotta go, you know, empty some freezer, because, you know, we didn't have a, a triage hospital, we didn't have, you know, the luxuries of some of the bigger mega fobs, so we had nowhere to store his remains, and I just remember them telling, not me, but in the vicinity like you know, we had to empty this freezer to put his remains in there i'm like me being the young private connecting a war like iraq to how things would be handled here in the states in my head like what do you mean we're putting him in a freezer i remember hearing that being so angry but i was a private so i didn't want to like it was already an emotional time for everybody, and like, all right, well, the E6s in the room are saying this, like, this is what you do when, when someone's KIA, so they're emptying a freezer and putting his remains in it until the medevac can come in and, and take his remains elsewhere. And I'm like, what the? F- you know, like, this is the this is the world I find myself right now, but you know, the remaining from that point forward. combat kicked up and our next death was sergeant west and that was march 11th or 12th i don't think i he was an e6 i was an e3 he was in a different uh different platoon or different company sorry him and i never crossed paths so you know the the connection emotionally wasn't there but you know it's like still your battle buddy and i just remember his so vividly because my birthday is march 14th and he died on the 11th or 12th, and his memorial was on my birthday, and, and it was just such a, and I'm not saying that to make it about me, but it, it's it, like, puts you in such a surreal frame of mind, like, we're going to do this memorial service, and then we're going to go do RCP again, so let's do the memorial, like, let's pay our respects and everything, like, we're going to take the time, but, you know, this is war, this isn't a time for mourning, this is, this is a time to fight back, you can mourn, you know, maybe when you get home, if you're not spinning up for another deployment, but you know, there's no time for emotions right now. Hmm. And that was, you know, it's a crazy thing to, to swallow it, you know, 19 years old PFC. And uh,
0: this one thing, maybe you can empathize with this a little bit. When I would hear, you know, KIA reports, or it's coming in, you're talking to people in different convoys, if you, you know, you don't hear it on the radio and you hear that someone died. And you're think, you know, the first thing that comes into your head is, like, the list of your friends, you know, like, don't let it yeah. be these people. And there's, it's, it's shitty, and it's one of those things I think about sometimes, when you're like, you find out it's someone that you've never heard of, you don't know who they are, you know, you don't know them from some exercise years ago, like, you never ran into them. And it's, it's like a weird sense of relief, because you're like, oh, you know, thank God it's not one of my friends, or like someone from my platoon, you know, whatever. And it, it feels shitty to be like feeling relief that it's not someone you know. Do you, yeah. do you know what I'm talking about? That, that kind of yeah. complicated feelings?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% man. And it's, you know, you feel for the people just because, I mean, it's inherent in all of us. You lose someone in such a gruesome way and, and Saren West was, and you know, you, like you said, there's a sense of relief that you didn't know them directly. But it's like shit. Should I like? I feel guilty for feeling that way, but it's it's. I feel like it's just a natural human response. Like, oh shit, someone died. I hope it's not my partner. I hope it's not my mom and dad. I hope it's anybody else. But you know, really, I don't hope it's anybody. But it's gonna be somebody. Mm -hmm. Um. So, but my second deployment was way. In northern iraq and i meant to look up the base because i get the location of these two bases mixed up but it was on the border of iraq and syria on the northwest side of the country and we were at a place called jss Hyder. and even though we were literally like in our guard towers you could see into syria it was a massive border point of entry for i mean pretty much similar to ours like truckers coming in and out delivering Um, Goods, exporting goods but the big thing since we were right on the border was foreign fighters coming in from syria into iraq and you know the borders were not what people think i mean in comparison to what we do with our borders their borders between iraq and syria is just a huge mound of dirt like it was a deliberate effort but it was just they pushed all this dirt together, like, all right, if you really want to cross, you have to hike up this mound of dirt, but then you're in the next country. And that's all it was. And well, <laughs> foreign fighters would would come from Syria into Iraq, so ours was border interdiction. Not the point of entry, but the illegal border crossings. And, and to this day, I just describe it as we were border patrol for a year. But yeah, so my second rotation to Iraq, I, I think, was you know we didn't lose anybody. From our squadron that I recall. Injured a a few, not my platoon, but a a few gunfights here and there. You know, we, one night, my memory sucks about a lot of things with deployments these days, but it was April 2nd of 2010. No idea why I remember it that specifically, but April 2nd or 3rd of 2010, we were doing a border interdiction night, set up multiple OPs with our four or five trucks and we waited and my gunner i still talked to him today he had the uh, Lraz with the 240 i think and he's like hey sergeant b and the other two ncos in the truck you know i got movement at, at, at this system and like in my head like fucking seriously like this mission sucks like this is a mundane boring mission like now we're gonna have to get out of the trucks hump up these mechs we're on the border like these these mountain dirts of moon dust I'm like Maldi you this better be legit I swear to god I was pissed because it's like midnight one in the morning at this point he's like no Sergeant, I see somebody I'm like alright whatever I was only in E5 at the time so Sergeant White was our section leader and then Sergeant Markham was the other team leader with me and then we had our lieutenant he was terrible he was a West Point graduate hate West Point graduates but we all dismounted and this lieutenant's like this is my first time being in some shit so very, very White and boot <laughs>
0: lieutenant kind of thing to say
1: <laughs> yeah I guess it's gonna be real like hey you know maybe Sergeant White and Sergeant Markham you know hug wide to the northeast to flank him to the southwest and somehow I drew short stick and I was with the LT and you know he's not about to take tactical advice from me an E5 even though I Have a you know fourteen month deployment under my belt already, whatever. So we you know hugged way southwest to come up into the northeast and, and interdict these guys because we didn't want them to run back into Syria where we have no jurisdiction. So in the midst of the LT and I inconspicuously making our way to where we're going, you know we hear one round pop off. It didn't sound like an AK. It sounded like an M4, and you know, like, this, it better not have been an ND, because I'm already pissed off. It's hot as hell. It's April. I'm like, this better, this better be getting ready to be something worth it. So we start running. The moon dust is, you know, gets everywhere, everywhere. And when we get there, and Markham is wrestling with this dude. Thing is, it looks like he's wearing a uniform of sorts. i like you know fast forward a couple minutes and I hand my weapon to the LT and you know I start getting down there and trying to get this dude zipped up and somewhere along the way this dude punches me in the temple and I roll away a little bit I'm not a big dude at all so I don't know what business I thought I had on the ground with this guy that easily had 40 pounds on me at least but I was trying to help And in the midst of this very mild chaos, somehow this dude gets away from four of us. It's embarrassing. Gets away, starts running into the darkness. He had a weapon when our gunner looked under the LRAZ. He didn't have one at this point, but we know what's getting ready to come. He's running. He's not running back towards Syria where he knows we can't follow him. He's running deeper into Iraq. So we're like, in my head, he's running towards a weapon. When we saw him on the l Raz initially, there was two of them. Now there's only one. Yeah, Sergeant White shot this dude three times. We run up to him, and and all three rounds hit. I don't know how he kept running, but they hit the last round. I'm assuming it was the one that took him down, but came in to the back of the thigh, came out the front of his thigh, and his femoral was just... It was just Going everywhere, and there's a second guy traipsing around. And that's our Maldi, our gunner with the LRAD, is like, Hey, there's a dude looking at you from like the Syria section of the DMZ. Like, all right, so our medic had gotten there by now, he's doing his thing. And I start doing, you know, at this point, light discipline was gone because we're triaging this dude, so we're this huge beacon of light. I'm like, all right, so I do a roving. patrol 20 or 30 meters out and i see this dude popping his head up under nods and if i remember right like stop in in arabic is a goth so Mm -hmm. i like screamed a goth and he wasn't a threat at the moment but as soon as i there was very low alum that night and as soon as i yelled that i saw it was like silhouette of an ak and you know i assuming i shot him and you know, I run over there, he's rolling down the hill, and he gets lugged into a military-looking vehicle. And I was like, yeah, that, that was the first and only time that visually seeing him roll down the hill lifeless, like, I think I just killed somebody. And that took a long time to process, too. It's like, like yeah, he was most likely an enemy combatant. Did I have PID? Arguable, but you know, I did what I did cause I felt threatened and you know, looking back on it, that one's 11 years ago and you know, I don't feel remorse over it now cause it's like, you don't know what, what that guy had like here in the States I'd hate to be a police officer because I think, you know, rules of engagement were strict over there, but you know, cops here have such a, a real shit end of the deal, I think. And I experienced a little of that, a little bit of that there.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. just, just the way it is, you know. Yeah, it sucks, but that's how it is.
1: Yeah, it's just the reality. And, and the rest of Iraq, there was there was this and that event that happened that you know, nothing significantly notable. You know, thankfully, our brigade didn't lose anyone that deployment. And as far as Afghanistan, you know, I'm happy I went, but a lot of the turmoil that you know i still deal with today a good 80% of it is you know what happened in that in such a short period of time march to september of 2012 in eastern afghanistan in Ghazmi province you know it was that was the point where i was like this is the deployment where i'm going to die and and i don't mean that in a trivial or or you know dramatic way like the the thought i had right around june was yep like this operation that's going sideways in a unprecedented way up until that point like this is what's like my parents are getting that knock on the door in a few days because i'm dying today and in the moment i fully believed it so what happened was it was june ish and it was supposed to be a supply route simple there and back from our cop to every squadron of cavalry, at least with the 82nd, has one infantry company attached to them, which was always Charlie Company. Alpha and Bravo troops and headquarters was at Cop Bond, and then the infantry company was at Cop Giro, and uh, they were living more rustic than us. Not that we were living the Ritz you know, lifestyle, but they they were really rough in it. So whatever the situation was, we were going to resupply them. I don't even remember what we were resupplying at the moment, but it was a ground operation. You know, we did the battle rehearsal, you know, the different phase lines and checkpoints, you know, we're stopping at I think it was actually called super fob. Like that was the name of this in between fob that we were stopping at to refuel, resupply before the last leg of the journey the next day um, it was supposed to be routine. It was like a supply it was a supply mission so it was like a hundred vehicles deep. so we're not tactical in my eyes. We're rolling it you know 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour straight line distance it was only 12 miles. The route that our s2 node which for the Army is like the intelligence section, s2 said, this is the best route to go. Cool. Initially, I was responsible for rear security of the entire 100-chuck element, and then a couple other combat platoons sprinkled in between to protect the support vehicles. I don't even know where it started going sideways, but when it did, you know, it was IEDs and accurate mortar fire and accurate small arms. And I was like, okay, this isn't, you know, this this is a little crazy, but it's, it's nothing too crazy. But, you know, as we started taking casualties and medevacs, and then days turned into night, and then, you know, it came to a head the first time when I'm still pulling up the rear and I was the platoon sergeant. So with the army, at least in combat patrol, the platoon sergeant's vehicle is always the last vehicle in the convoy. We had two other platoon sergeants in the unit, but I just happened to be the one that was at the tail at the moment, and in front of me was two Hemet Wreckers, and I just remember driving, it was dark, we're going under nods, these vehicles are, you know, we're all in MRAPs at this point in the war, and these these Wrecker vehicles, these supply vehicles are just, you know, humongous military constructions, and... uh. If I blinked, I would have missed it. But somewhere in the mountains that were immediately to our right, they set off. I don't know if it was victim operated or radio operated, but whatever the case, a daisy chain IED blew up the truck in front of me and the truck in front of him. And, you know, MRAPs, you know, and those kind of vehicles they are fucking heavy, like tens of thousands of pounds. And you would think these vehicles were made of paper mache because these IEDs were, I'm assuming they were HME, because that's what we always got hit with in Afghanistan, and decimated the vehicles. One of them, my buddy Sergeant Hayes, and his driver, I can't remember, were, were you know, relatively speaking unfazed, Sergeant Hoyam and his driver can't remember him. They were in the truck immediately in front of me. And again, kind of like circling back, I was a platoon sergeant and my role was stay in the truck, send up the sit rep, send up the contact. And if you get a nine line from the guys on the ground, send it up to your commander and, you know, control the area. Don't get involved. At least is how I was brought up as an NCO when I reached platoon sergeant status. Um, so I dropped the ramp. That was another frustration. We're a combat unit, but like, all right, I'm going to drop the ramp. Yep, perfect time for someone to just lug a grenade in there, you know, or an RPG, because the ramp drops at a snail's pace. So I dropped the ramp. My medic, mentor was in there, and my buddy, who was my gunner the previous deployment on the LRAZ, with the situation I was describing earlier, he was now my dismounted team leader. You know, it's it's the fog of war. My I don't know what I said, but essentially, like, go figure out what the casualties are and let me know. They get out there, and whoever his driver was immediately in front of me, he was fucked up because he got out of the truck, wasn't taking cover, and he's kind of just wandering, you know, he's in shock, disoriented.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So I, yeah, and I cracked the door, and I knew his name at the time. We'll say it's Smith. I'm like, Smith, get the fuck over here! What are you doing? Not connecting the dots. He's probably in shock. And you know, Maldonado and Doc Minter are getting, starting to hoy him out. It's like, I jump out of the truck and I grab the dude. Fucking bad idea. I don't know he was standing up, but you know, like, the fireman carry. I grabbed him underneath and started to pick him up, and he just starts screaming bloody murder. So, like, I set him down. I'm like, I said, like, what's wrong? And fast forward to when we knew it was wrong, and, and both his shoulders were broken. So, when I tried to fireman carry him it was just excruciating and you know i walked him to the back of the mrap loaded him up in it he didn't know what the fuck was going on you know all those common like cognitive questions like what day is it what's your name what's your date of birth who's the president i remember listening to doc minter asking and he didn't know a majority of these questions and sorry to him, the cab had gone up into the air and flipped over, so he was stuck with his seatbelt on. One of the only people to wear their seatbelt in a truck in Iraq in Afghanistan. So we had to cut his belt, and you know he's screaming. He's like, "I, I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything." And, and you know, he looked, he wasn't in good shape. And you know, it's a fine, it's a fine line between where uh, you want to rescue somebody and get him in the vehicle and get a medevac. But at the same time, to get to that point, you have to cause them pain that you probably can't even comprehend. And we cut him, and, you know, we screamed that time because he fell, and he was a big dude, like a jacked dude, like muscular, dragging him out on the fire side of the operation. There's no delicate way to rip him out. We probably did more damage to him, but, you know, there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. And we dragged him all the way to the driver's side of my truck, which was the safe side at the moment. And you know, we triage, doc triages him, and we get him on a on a litter. And you know, I get back in the truck and I call the nine line up. You know, we're getting fired at. There's mortars coming in. You know, it was just so kinetic and in such an unbelievable situation. We get them medevaced, probably. 15, 30 minutes later, and then we had revolving Apache gunship coverage for the rest of the night, and it was deemed we were mission ineffective. We stayed in place until day broke in our mine, our MREP, I can't remember now, Buffaloes, or, or the had the huge mine rollers on front to, mm-hmm. to detect pressure plated IEDs. Those had been since blown up, and those people had been medevaced hours before, and we had to our call, right? We towed some of them and then some of them we had to just blow in place. So the day broke, and my commander, like, hey, my call sign was Chaos Six. It's like, Chaos Six, Black Six. I'm like, hey, what's up, sir? like, hey, so your element's going to go ahead and lead us into Giro. And we were probably about, you know, three clicks away. We were close. And every lead vehicle up until that point had been decimated and uh, every occupant had been medevaced and got it copy mm-hmm. and it was that moment where it's like okay like every other vehicle that's blown up so far has been a vehicle it's more or less designed to take those huge rounds my little MRAP's just going to get fucking decimated and it's was like this is you know is this going to be the day I die you know and I'm fucking 24 25 at the time like is this the day that i don't come home and then i don't get my guys home and i remember still to that day and it's hard to talk about because i'm like that's that's what's going to happen like i'm going to die today and are my guys and it's my fault and you know i'm not religious whatsoever anymore but somehow we made it um made it to Giro. the mission was a complete failure because all the supplies we were going to take are the vehicles that were blown up before they started attacking the combat vehicles so the mission was a complete waste of money and not to look at it like that but it was tens of thousands if not a few million dollars for what for a waste of quality of life Sarnhoyam, hoyam he ended up being paralyzed from the waist down to this day and you know the next leg was all right now we got to get home but we can't go back that way because we got our ship pushed in so what way are we going now whatever way our s2 said to go we went and you know it was like we didn't even get all our vehicles outside the wire to come home before we started getting fucked up again like dude what is going on and you know it got to a point where i'm like you know, calling my trucks, like, you know, give me a status on your ammo to my other truck commanders. You know, like, black, black, out of ammo, less than black, you know, you know, 50 cal, like, the barrel's turning fucking blue, so can't, you know, warping the barrel so we can't use the crew serves, and, you know, down to personal M4s. I'm like, what the, f-? like, this, maybe I was naive, but I was like, it is 2012, like, this kind of combat, doesn't happen but it was in the most gruesome way and and it got to a point where our foe, our forward observer, we had everything on station. It felt like for that short period of time the war was right there and we had every air asset that, that we could have wished for and I don't say that as a good thing because it's shit that we had to request it and the only thing that saved us I feel like is an F-16 did a dry run on the nap of the earth and didn't drop any munitions but you know you see a fixed wing coming in the enemy knows that we have that at our disposal at the moment so it kind of subsided everything going on but you know for those few hours it's just they're they're strategic and they're methodical and they knew the strategy by watching us over 10 years it's like Behind us, front of us, we're kind of pinned in it now. We can't go backwards. Now we can't go forward. And now we're getting mortared and RPG'd and small arms fire. It's like, these guys are organized. The Taliban is not one to fuck with, I don't think. And I think the U.S. military for at least a a certain number of years underestimated what the Taliban can do. And I can never get over that. You know we made it back the mission like i said it was a failure you know my efforts and everyone else's of the command team was was you know recognized and and you know awarded you know various commendations but you know you know it came at the expense of you know people's lives and and livelihood and to this day i still hold such resentment because Somewhere, whoever came up with the ops plan did us a disservice at a cataclysmic level that caused such trauma for everybody, whether it be like mental or you know, very physical disabilities or TBIs. Like, I don't want to say someone's at fault because I feel like everyone put the best effort, their best foot forward, but at the same time. I want to, I need to blame somebody because lives were shattered for that week, you know, and it only got worse from there. And it, and it ultimately, it, that's what broke it for me. And looking back, you know, Afghanistan is, is, is probably a deployment I shouldn't have gone on, but I felt Obligated because they were asking me to. Like, can you extend your contract? You know, you know, we need the experience going into Afghanistan because other people had already PCS'd different assignments and whatnot. You know, can you stick out this deployment? And you know, I I I did thinking it was you know it's fine. It's gonna be like my first two Iraq deployments. A little bit of a little bit of uh you know shit, but nothing like out of a movie. Like it felt. and you know when I got home so don't ask don't tell was repealed late like mid 2011 but it didn't actually go into effect I think until September or October of 2011 and I came out uh, I was still in Afghanistan and I wrote an email to my parents and I was like hey take it or leave it that's it things were okay my parents are like falling off the right end of the spectrum politically so I was expecting a bad reception with it but it was as good as I could have expected and you know when I got home told my mom and this is like don't come out like you need to let me decompress Uh, to this day probably one of my biggest embarrassments and regrets even though I couldn't help it and and there was a reason behind it but she came to see me redeploy the States and she was in the house that I just rented And I don't even remember where this stemmed from, but, you know, she's my mom and I fucking exploded on her. And I don't even remember, don't even remember what we were talking about. I just, I was like, go the fuck back to Alabama. And I was, I know there was a mental health reason behind it, but still screaming at my mom, like she's done nothing but supported me sent me care packages loved me to death you know and i just gave her the worst like it was embarrassing and you know it's, it's that moment i didn't quite realize like i got shit going on i was like i'm acting rationally you know my mom she had it coming in the moment that's what i thought and you know fast forward now it's been nine years since that happened and you know it's how shameful, you know, even though, you know, blame it on PTSD or, you know, battle fatigue, whatever you want to call it. It's like in my head, like, you should have known better. Like it's your fucking mother. She doesn't deserve that. And I have since apologized to her and she'll probably watch this and start crying because <laughs> because she knows it was such a terrible, you know, terrible time.
0: If it makes you feel any better, I Almost the exact same thing happened. No one came. Home, no one was there when I got back from Iraq. But my dad surprised me coming home from Afghanistan, and yeah, I was livid. It's like you, you're just not ready to be a person around your family. You know, you need to hang out in the barracks, like drink a bunch, just kind of like get get your feet back under you. You know, feel comfortable. You know, yeah. so that you don't see trash on the road and think it's an IED. You don't hear like. Right artillery booming on the other side of the base and hit the deck you know it's it's cool that people are so willing to come home and see people home that's like a very patriotic thing and like i'm sure you know they miss us as well but man that sucks i couldn't imagine being the people that you know go home to a spouse and kids like no yeah i i could never have done that
1: no and and that's a great example like at least I was single at the time and my mom ended up going home. But yeah, coming back to immediate like, all right, hon, like, you know, welcome back. Can you take the kids to school day? You know, it, it, it takes years, you know, I'm still dealing with it. And, you know, where I am now compared to, you know, 2012, you know, I'm proud of myself, but, you know, two weeks reintegration doesn't mean you're, you know, A-OK to hang out with the family again. You know, yeah. it takes a lot of work. Yeah. So I was in the 82nd for seven and a half years. And I did recruiting for the last four and a half and it's it's weird to see that side of it, because yeah, recruiters are exactly as as advertised, but trying to break the mold from it. You know, it's hard. The issues with recruiting, I think of any branch, the issues are systemic. You know, you you have a mission to meet a quota, and it's either you sacrifice a piece of your career by not depping the required numbers for the month or you dep some people that you aren't really proud of. Like, they meet the Mm -hmm. requirements, they can come in, but you'd be pissed if they came to your unit. And, you know, it was a weird balancing act from it, so. And I did recruiting in Nebraska. I requested the Denver Battalion, and I got the Denver Battalion. They're like, all right, cool, you're going to Kearney. I'm like, where the fuck is that in Colorado? Like, it's not. You're going, you're going to Kearney, Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere. And I looked it up. I'm like, there is nothing. You have to zoom out on Google Maps probably three, four times before you see like a major metropolitan area. I recruited in Kearney for three years as just a, a, a worker bee. And then there was a, they called it a center leader, like running an office. There was a center leader position opening up three hours east in Omaha. And it was the same company so i got with my first sergeant like hey first sergeant Barnes, millard which is west omaha like millard needs a center leader and right now you got i don't remember her name some female e7 that i couldn't stand like you got her running millard right now i just converted to be a permanent recruiter because i i I really couldn't risk deploying again it sounds like a shitbag thing but the three deployments it just it whittled me down to you know bare bones I couldn't do a fourth deployment and it's like yeah like let's try and get you to Millard so I, I got to Millard started running the office you know all these issues that I think a lot of vets push down on the mental health side you know push down for a reason you got a broken leg you got a TBI you got this that and the other I feel like you know unless it's incredibly severe you, you could probably stay in and continue serving in some capacity you know, recruiting, you know, some cadre position, something. Mm -hmm. But I feel like as soon as you have some kind of significant mental health, like stamp on your med record, you know, you're fucking done. And I have been avoiding getting it looked at for so long. It's like, we're deploying, like, you know, it's not about me. It's about, it's about, you know, being the experienced senior NCO overseas whereas all the junior guys coming in now deployments are fewer and far between so like i owe it to like sure i owe it to the united states sure but i owe it to the guys that i'm training i don't want to ditch them and they go over there and like oh i'm gonna go chill in a recruiting office so you know I, I was wanting to do my part we just got to a point i couldn't give anymore and took over that office was in that position maybe shit, four or five months and I told that same first sergeant, like, hey, you know, I, I got some things going on. I'm having a hard time, you know, masking. And, you know, I think I need to, to talk to somebody. And I do not want to say it because, mm-hmm. you know, like I say, it's going to torpedo your career. And, uh, you know, started talking to someone at Offutt Air Force Base that was in Omaha. And, you know, fast forward, like, another five months and they're like, all right, well, you know, you have, you know, PTSD and a handful of other mental health issues. I'm like, yeah, but I'm managing fine. Like, that's why I came to recruiting. Like, I can do this. I just need yeah. help getting to a, a, a better space, and I'm good. I'm like, yeah, but if you're considered non-deployable, which I ended up being, the SAR major of the Army at the time, SAR major... I think it was Sergeant Major Daly. It's like, if you're non deployable, you know, you you gotta get out. Like, I've got almost 12 years in. Like, I can't get out. Like, I wanna, like, I I was devastated. You know, fast forward, this was, I got medically retired Halloween in 2017. And the start of that year, you know, they started the, the, the medical board process like all right yeah so in short you're getting medically retired and you know start getting your affairs in order and you know it's devastating because because my dad he did 21 years and he reached e7 promotable by the time he retired they're like hey you can pay e eight you know but you gotta you gotta commit another three four year billet he's like no I'm good <laughs> did 21 years did two deployments to vietnam like i'm good the goal was to always outrank him and i got to e7 and you know i was e7 for about a year before maybe a little less before you know i started my my terminal leave and yeah yeah here we are
0: yeah this this is tough man talking about uh you know the if you have that stamp on your record that they're just like oh this yeah. guy's this guy's shaken up or you know whatever whatever you want to call yeah. it I, I don't know about you we had to fill out big surveys when we would get back from deployments and it's like are you sleeping yeah. well at night how much you know how much do you drink on a daily yeah. basis and everyone is like zero you know as everyone's drinking <laughs> a 12 pack plus every single night right like, like, it's yep the whole system is designed to incentivize people to not get treated to hide it to lie yeah. to let to obfuscate right. and it's right. it's yeah it's fucking everybody up there's a reason that you know my buddies who are still in they're just like it's crazy we're all e7 e8 and they're the only guys to have a combat action ribbon or you know a cib for the army yeah. so right. like yeah. the only people who've made it this far have never done the deployments and it's <laughs> it's just catastrophic
1: Right. And and it's so surreal because now, you know, the guys that, you know, it's only been four years, but I mean, in terms of, of, you know, mental health and then people promoting and, and doing more high-speed shit in the latter part of their career and, and the, uh, the, you know, upper end billets of command. And, and I know all these people have kind of mental health issues, but, you know, they want to stay in. So like you said, those questionnaires, like, how much do you drink? Do you have trouble sleeping? How many days a week do you feel sad? Like I could tell you I feel sad one day a month and that would immediately send me to psych. So it's it's like you said, it's, it's built to not work in your favor. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there's a methodology behind it, but it scares people from seeking treatment. I'd rather lose a leg. I mean, this is being overly dramatic, so not really, but I feel like you'd be able to stay in losing a leg significantly easier than someone saying like yeah you you have ptsd or you know you have you know some some trauma based anxiety or what have you that's a scary diagnosis like oh you're gonna amputate my leg like that's terrible but there's a chance i might still serve give me a mental health diagnosis and you know it's just in my case it was a fucking death sentence so it was uh surreal
0: thanks thanks for talking to me here nick i i don't I really appreciate you being real honest telling these stories you know it's talking to a lot of people you can see where they kind of pump the brakes and and obviously you yeah. didn't do that i really appreciate that man that's very cool
1: sure yeah i uh, i like what you're trying to do yeah bridging bridging the gap because yeah i think it <laughs> i think it needs to be done yeah
0: and if if you have any organizations you want to promo you know
1: i don't necessarily have any any organizations that I vocally or staunchly support, I think I'm still trying to find myself with being so recently medically retired, you know, in my eyes anyway. And, you know, I'm trying to settle some things out within myself before, you know, I, I I venture out and, you know, I, I guess, expose myself to the elements that are, you know, veteran organizations probably has to do with a little bit. Of me being, you know, gay and, and some of the stigmas that, that Kind of from that, you know, there's there's character judgment in, in I think, gay veterans and, and, you know, I don't know if a lot of organizations are, the mainstream ones are, are quite there yet. You know, I'm not your stereotypical, let's say, gay guy, but, you know, it's a hard pill for someone to swallow and, uh, you know, some of that discrimination I've experienced. So, I'm not quite ready to test the waters with any vet organizations that, you know, might not be supportive or, you know, neutral about it
0: yeah that's that's totally fair man that's again you're just a very honest guy appreciate that
1: <laughs> yeah for sure man no problem nice talking to you you too
0: alright that's it for today's show I want to thank Nick again for being so candid the military has such a culture of strength and bravado that it makes talking openly about having a hard time pretty taboo but it's clear that Nick can take that strength and put it into talking about the things he's experienced. I say this all the time, but the people who talk to me on this show, they never stop being leaders. And Nick is just another amazing example of that. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next time.